0: Tonight's scripture reading comes from 2 Samuel 2, 12 through 17. Abner, son of Ner, together with the men of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, left Mahanaim and went to Gibeon. Joab, son of Zeruiah, and David's men went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. One group sat down on one side of the pool and one group on the other side. Then Abner said to Joab, let's have some of the young men get up and fight hand to hand in front of us. All right, let them do it, Joab said. So they stood up and were counted off, 12 men for Benjamin and ish son of Saul, and 12 for David. Then each man grabbed his opponent by the head and thrust his dagger into his opponent's side, and they fell down together. So that place in Gibeon was called Helkath-Hatzarim. The battle that day was very fierce, and Abner and the Israelites were defeated by David's men. This is the word of the Lord. (laughs)
1: <laughs> there, there is an old saying that says, don't ask how the sausage is made. Um, and what it means is, sometimes uh, you like the outcome, but you really don't want to know, wanna know <laughs> how you got there. Um, the Bible, however, talks a lot about how the sausage is made. And uh, the text that we're looking at tonight is one of those parts of Scripture. The life of David has a lot of sausage-making in it. Um, David, of course, is the terminus of all sorts of prophecies. Uh, He's clearly uh, the anticipated servant of God's will that unifies Israel and ushers in the next phase of the kingdom of God. He's part of a trajectory that runs from Adam through Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Samuel. He is the David that points to the new David, Jesus Christ. He is the center of God's plan of sending uh, the nation of Israel into the world to model a new way of being human and to lead the nations to to worship Yahweh and all these wonderful things. 2 Samuel 7 The prophet Nathan will declare that the line of David will never fail and that a descendant of David will reign forever. So when you study the life of David, you study God's will being worked out in the world to save the nations. Man, is it a mess. The book of 2 Samuel begins... After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. Saul dies, a failed king, by his own hands, surrounded by his enemies, abandoned by Yahweh. This sets the stage for the rise of David to power. Now, how did David get to Ziklag? David, pursued by Saul, had reached a point of desperation He goes over to the other side to the enemy king and proposes himself as a bodyguard. The enemy king suggests that he take up headquarters in Ziklag. And this is a very curious defection to the enemy. This would have been like Winston Churchill at the height of World War II becoming an advisor to a Nazi general and taking up residence in Berlin. But that's what David did. Now, a young man brings David the news of King Saul's death. David says, well, how do you find out that he died? Chapter 1, the messenger says, well, the king said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and I killed him. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I brought them to my Lord. Now, the messenger certainly thinks he's going to be rewarded, that The new king will rejoice. David instead becomes furious and says, How is it that you you were not to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And one of the commentators explains his curious behavior like this. David still respects Yahweh's anointed one. David seems to feel that Saul's very wickedness is somehow part of Yahweh's providential design. God accomplishes what he wants through the moral depravity of Saul. It appears as though God, who is sovereign over both history and nature, can work into providential design even the sinful behavior of bad people. Saul would be king until God saw fit to remove him, and it was not David's place to question or meddle. We're still left with many questions. I mean, after all, wasn't the young messenger obeying the king of Israel when the king of Israel said, kill me? We're wondering why David did not have more mercy. But by the end of this chapter, David has taken a significant step towards solidifying power through the knife of a confused, young, executed soldier. Well, after he kills the young man, David leads his followers through a public lament for Saul and Jonathan. And then in chapter 2, he... uh, inquires of the Lord, what is next? After this, David inquired, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said, go up. And David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahenium of Jezreel, Abigail the widow of Nabal. David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah." So the elders of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, have now proclaimed publicly what Samuel had proclaimed so many years earlier privately. David now is king of the southern kingdom. Judah was David's distant relative. Abraham had promised to Judah that one day the scepter would come through his line. So all of this is the fulfillment of prophecy. Now, the northern tribes are still pro-Saul. Abner, Saul's top general, moves quickly, installs Saul's weak son, Ish-bosheth, as a puppet king over the northern tribes, and a civil war begins. Abner's army confronts Joab in the story that, that we just read a few moments ago. Joab was David's top general, and they do something that uh, was common in, in, in this period is you you select several people to do the fighting for you. and that's exactly what they do, except for they slaughter each other. When that doesn't work, terrible fighting breaks out. The men of Israel uh, hurt seriously, or rather, the men of David hurt the northern kingdom's soldiers, and they start to retreat. Joab has a little brother. The little brother's name is Asahel. Asahel decides he's going to get a star he chases the wily old general Abner to kill him. Abner says, stop. Asahel keeps pursuing him, but he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out his back and he fell there and he died where he was. So Joab, seeing his little brother dead, starts to pursue Abner. Finally, Abner says, shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know the end will be bitter? Joab and Abner make a partial truce. At this point, 20 of David's men are killed, 360 of Abner's men are dead. And chapter 3 begins, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. Sons are born to David. Amnon, Chileab, Absalom, Adonijah, Sephthia, Etherem. And by the way, the key to pronouncing Hebrew names is to pretend you know how. (laughs) Because no one else knows either, okay? This list hints of future tragedy. Amnon will rape his half-sister Tamnar. Absalom will kill Abnon, rebel against his father, find himself dangling by his hair from a tree. Adonijah will be put to death by a brother yet to be born named Solomon. Solomon. Meanwhile, Abner turns on his puppet king, comes to David and says, why don't we make peace? And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, for some time past, you've been seeking David as king. Now bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel. So even Abner, this wily old general, has some sense that the hand of God is working through all of this mess He realizes that David is God's man, and he comes over to the other side. David and Abner make peace. Abner pledges the support of the northern kingdom. They have a great banquet, and for about five minutes, peace breaks out in Israel. Joab shows up. Joab hates Abner because Abner killed Joash's little brother. Joab goes after Abner. And they brought him back, but David didn't know about it. Joab took Abner into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately, and there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel's brother. David is shocked, and this is where it's hard to tell how savvy David is. You could read this cynically or another way, but David is appalled that yet another one of his enemies has been wiped out in a pool of blood. And he says, curse on your house, Joab. He, however, never fires Joab. And one more head has rolled. So, chapter 4 begins. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. The puppet king in the north realizes that the end is near. He doesn't know how near, because two of his own men... Banna and Arechab slip into his house when he's taking his siesta. And when they came into the house, as he lay in his bed in the bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. Bana and Rechab expect a reward for bringing the head of David's enemy to him, but David again denounces them as wicked men who've killed an innocent man. And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and their feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. And one commentator writes the whole episode ends in a strange image cluster of detached body parts. <laughs> The hands and feet of the two executed assassins and the head of their victim. Even as David is about to assume control of a united monarchy, we have an intimation of mayhem and dismemberment that is an thematic prelude to the story of David's reign. Now that Ishbosheth is dead, there is no one else who could take the throne, and David has finally consolidated power. And Act 1 is about to close that began way back in 1 Samuel 16, chapter 5, verse 1. So all the other elders of Israel came to the king of Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them, and they anointed David king of Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. And that, my friends, is how the sausage was made. Now, when you read stories like this, you wonder, why did our spiritual grandparents... Put this stuff in there. Couldn't they have cleaned it up? And you realize they put it in there for a reason. They wanted us to read stories like this because there's a lesson in it. And if the lesson is anything, it's something like this. God works through messy, sinful people and processes to advance his kingdom in the world. That's kind of Christianity, folks. God works through messy, bloody, broken, HBO-style processes to get his work done in the world. Now, my assignment for you is this. I, 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 I want you to have one conversation this week based on this, and I want you to ask the question... Restate the principle. God uses messy processes to get his work done in the world. Name one area where that encourages you personally at this point in your life. And just to get you thinking, I'm going to give you three quick ones from my story. Pray for Orlando. I am learning about public lament from my brother Daryl, Daryl Arnold. Uh, Daryl has an appreciation for lamenting publicly over uh, major communal events. So last year, after Charleston's shootings, he invited many people, including myself, and many of you were there, to a a public service to remember the victims. And Monday morning this year, he said, you know, I think we should do this for the victims at Orlando. Uh, And so that was off. Thursday evening, uh, we, we held an event over at OBC. About a dozen pastors were there, people from a number of churches, that was about praying for the uh, the victims of the Orlando shooting. And I haven't had a chance to, to process it with Daryl yet. I, I want to, because I'm learning a lot about, about this. I, I, this is not a part of my tradition, um, but I think I have much to learn from a minute. And so I won't go into details. But when the evening was over, I just felt like we'd missed something. Uh, I felt like... If some of my gay friends had been at the service, they, they might not have been very encouraged. Uh, and I told Sandy, I just said, I don't know what it is, I just feel like we have a really long way to go in, in learning how to love uh, the LGBT community. And I had one encounter with a person afterward that sort of confirmed my, my, my thought. Well, the following morning, I shared that with a friend. He's about seventy years old. He's a weathered, many battles, many good causes, and he said, "You know, change is hard, and it takes a long time. And this is very complicated. At least you took a step towards the way of love." And I thought, "Yeah, that's this principle, right? We didn't, we didn't. Whatever we did Thursday night, we didn't do perfectly, uh, but at least we tried to move towards." love it's it's messy i don't know how you do it i have no idea second story today's father's day obviously it's a time when we thank our dads it's also a time when we reflect on our own journeys as a father and uh, i'm very thankful for uh my children's grace and forgiveness um I hope to think that at sometimes I did some things right as their father, too. But I, I've been thinking a lot about fathering lately, and yesterday I had some time off, and I was reading a book on it. And the chapter that I was in was talking about the role of a father or a father figure in a life of a boy, helping him make the transition into manhood. And the uh, the author speaks of a crisis in masculinity, and he, he works with a lot of men, and he says he sees... Many men missing an adequate connection to the deep and instinctual masculine energies, the potentials of mature masculinity. And he goes on to say that that one of the things that a boy needs to become a man is uh, a good, healthy relationship with a father or father figure. Many of us seek the generative, affirming, and empowering father, though most of us don't know it, the father who for most of us never existed in our actual lives and won't appear no matter how hard we try to make him appear. Well, I haven't even started reading the chapter about daughters yet. Um, and so I spent some time yesterday thinking about my own uh, life as a father. And as I kind of stepped into this massive vision about the importance of a father and helping children launch into the world and tap into their deepest essence in God, I, I, I just was reminded of, uh, well, frankly, the, the the many times that I blew it. You know, people always say, you know, my dad did the best they can- he could. Well, no, he didn't. I didn't. Nobody always does the best they can. <laughs> and so I thought about the night that Hunter wanted to go camping, and I just didn't really want to. And so I kind of halfwayed it, and we wound up going home in the middle of the night. And I thought about some of the times I you know worked when I maybe didn't need to work or was so into my own stuff that i I missed a child's need. Um, and you know, if you think about this stuff seriously, you can't help but go back and think about you know your own dad and that relationship and all that stuff. So the story of David's bloody rise to power reminds me that God is quietly at work in and behind all of our broken attempts at fatherhood to bring about his goodwill. And if there's a lie out there that we believe sometimes, I think it goes something like this, Uh, your kids will never overcome the way you messed them up, and you'll never overcome the way your dad messed you up. I, I I don't think that's true. If it's true, we're all in trouble, right? I mean, because even God's kids disobeyed him right in the garden. <laughs> I take a lot of comfort in that. He, uh, he was the best daddy in the world, and they just kind of said, meh, nah. went their own way. <laughs> um, we've been living that ever since. So if you're a dad, and, and you know, maybe this day is just full of uh, a lot of wonderful things. I hope it was for you. Maybe maybe today's full of some regrets. Um like a little little bit it was for me. Uh, Or maybe you're part of the human race and you realize your dad, you know, for whatever reason, wasn't able to give you everything that you needed. Probably because his dad wasn't able to give him everything he needed. I think the good news is that there's a God. And you're not sentenced to doom because of what your daddy did or didn't do, and your kids aren't sentenced to doom because you got a divorce, or you watch too much TV, or you're an alcoholic, or you struggle with addiction, or you work too much, or yada, 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 yada. There's a God. He's at work. Don't take yourself too seriously. The last little story I call Mama's Sick. We have about maybe as many as 70 kids on our swim team this year, and, uh, we drive about seven kids from vulnerable families, and a donor makes it possible for us to send each of the seven kids home with a bag of groceries every Thursday night. And this summer, I've noticed something, that the kids are starting to ask me about the food bags on Monday night. And, and they do this pretty much every night. They say, do we get the bags tonight? And I say, no, we just do it once a week, and they come on Thursday night. And they ask me again on Tuesday night. I say, no, they're coming on Thursday night. Well, one night I, I was driving several with the little girls home, and the bags hadn't come yet. We'd mixed, missed up the, the handoff. And a one, little eight year old says, Could you take me to dinner? Could you take us to dinner? And they, three of them are sitting in the, in the back seat, and um, uh, they, they've all got this soggy dollar bill in their hand. And this was not my best night, and I, I was tired, it was late. It's hard doing this. And I said, honey, I can't take you guys to dinner every time I take you home. And there was this long pause, and three little hands stick out, soggy dollar bills, and say, uh, the little one was eight, would you drop us off at Dollar General? We'll walk. And I said, honey, what do you normally do for dinner? And she said, we don't. I said, I said, what do you mean you don't? She said, we don't have dinner. And, 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 and I said, well, how come? And there was this real long pause, and then she just said, Mama's sick. Now, I don't know if she's, I guess she could be lying to me. I know there's lots of resources for children like her. I do notice in the summer when they're not in school, these kids are a lot hungrier. But I, I know that when I took them to get the Mc, McNugget special, um, they sure looked like they were hungry. And, and I, I drove away thinking these kids live two miles away from Market Square and they don't get dinner. How does this happen? And as I'm prone to do in the summer, you've probably figured this up by now, I start to, you know, it's all hopeless, you know, Eeyore. I mean, ah, nothing's going to work. I quit. Um, and, and then I remember the people that have moved into their neighborhood. I remember the teachers that are teaching them and going to their games on their own time. I remember the soccer field that's been built for them. I remember the little summer camp that they went to the the morning. Um, And I remember Dr. King's great sentence about the arc of justice. (laughs) I can't remember the rest of it, but uh, uh, the idea that it takes forever to get here, but eventually it comes. And and honestly, folks, sometimes when we do this swimming thing, I think, we should just shut this down we are so pathetic and we are so unorganized and we have so few resources you know what are we doing and then the lord reminds me i'm doing you won't see it you'll be dead it's all going but it's gonna keep going to keep on it's going to keep going i'm in it show up throw kids around Play Sea Monster. That's the one thing they remember of all my instruction is <laughs> after an hour of training, let's do Sea Monster. And that's, I'm the Sea Monster. So that's all I remember. <laughs> and I find that encouraging in some odd way that even Sea Monster will um, result in the, in the glory of God. So, uh, one last thought. How is this story different from those shows on TV like Game of Thrones and House of what are the Cards, and you know, honestly, I don't, I don't watch those things because I'm sort of mostly fragile, and I get discouraged when I watch them. What's the difference between the Bible and Game of Thrones? Is, yeah. <laughs> Our belief is that it's not just about raw power and brutality, jockeying for ego, Our belief is that above that story is a bigger story where the God who is love and justice is working through it all to bring about his kingdom honor. And that's why we can have hope. Let's pray.